every single person in the world, it seems to me, can be divided into one of two categories. Uh, the first group is you've got a goal or a target or something that's happening in the future and your immediate response to the goal is to plan. Right, so you, um, immediately you think, right, I'm going to make a little schedule, I might even colour code it, and then I'm going to work gradually towards the goal until it's complete. Hands up if that's you. Uh, you can join in if you're on the screen as well, but yeah, okay, that's some people. Now, the other group of people is kind of the opposite. It's you have a goal, there's something happening in the future, and your immediate response is not, I must plan, but, well, we've got loads of time left, so I'll start tomorrow. Hands up if that's you. Yeah, I, I am definitely, definitely one of those people. And um, the truth is that we tell ourselves, those of us who are in that category, well, you know, I'm energized by the thrill of the last minute. You know, it's like I can see that deadline coming and I just feel excited and I do my best work. And lots of people, if you've ever done one of those personality type profile things, they always say, no, no, that's just as valid, you know, and you do just as good a work at the last minute. Now, my confession is that there's another word that could be used to replace excitement and thrill of the last minute, and it's the word stress. And um, during my A-levels, when all of my friends were planning and you know, they'd, they'd got their color-coded revision timetable and they were carefully working through the subjects, I was mostly having barbecues. And then it got to the last night before every exam, and that would be the moment where I tried to find the textbook and failed, and where I tried to find my notes and failed. And it was the most stressful period that I'd ever had in my life. And so for five years after I did my A-levels, I didn't take a single test or a single exam. I didn't even allow myself to learn to drive because I knew how stressful exams and tests are. And eventually, the call of God sort of caught up with me and I knew I had to go to Bible college. And, and so I went there and of course there were exams. And so this whole thing about the thrill and the excitement of the last minute sort of caught up with me again. And it was very stressful. And I've said before that I was most looking forward to the time when I would be walking across a platform a bit like this and there would be a man wearing a funny hat and a gown and he would shake my hand and, it, and we would kind of both stand there holding a piece of plastic pipe, pretending it was a certificate, and then, we would sh and then I would walk off. Well, on, on the day, having shaken the man's hand and held the plastic pipe, I got to the other side of the stage and I got to the floor and I did a little dance uh, and a little cheer and a kind of fist pump uh, and I was just so thrilled. And my lecturer, one of my lecturers, who's a really, really godly man, he, he sort of leaned across and he went, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just so thrilled. I never have to sit another test or another exam for the rest of my life. And he said this, dear boy, you'll be facing test after test for the rest of your life. It's true, isn't it? Particularly as Christians, we face test after test after test. Most days, our circumstances or people around us bring us to a point where we are examined, where our character is called into question, and whether we have to make a decision to do the right thing or the not-so-right thing. We face test after test. Now, we might want to say as Christians, well, actually, I'm, you know, I've been a Christian for quite a while now, and I'm sort of past that bit. You know, I've matured, and I don't really face tests in the same way anymore, to which I would want to say, absolute rubbish. You know, if you take the example of Jesus, 
Jesus has this incredible encounter with God at his baptism. He's filled powerfully with the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse in Luke chapter 4 verse 1 is this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. If Jesus was tempted, will be tempted. The Christian life is made up of all kinds of trials and tests and temptations. And um, as Christians, you know, if you want to say, well, uh, I'm not facing any tests or temptations, well, check your pulse because you might have passed away during the worship. Just a little joke there. This is... uh We're in a series right now on relationships and we've come to a point in the story of Joseph where Joseph faces an enormous test, which is this huge temptation that he's faced with and he does the right thing. So let's read about that. So Genesis chapter 39 we're going to read from. It's going to come up on the screen as well. I'm going to read from verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household, from, from, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, much like my good self. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told him, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But I just imagine she's like a Russian shop putter or something. Anyway, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So we're in this series on relationships, and the truth is that relationships are often tested. You know, there's always pressure on relationships in different ways. Um, And uh, some of those pressures we've seen over the course of the the time we've been looking at the story of Joseph, and some of them are still to come. But one of the pressures on relationships, especially marriage relationships, is temptation. The enemy knows 
that the best way to wipe somebody out, to wipe out marriages, to wipe out relationships, to take somebody who is absolutely right in the heart of a church and move them out of the way, to, to get rid of brilliant ministries or even to take down whole churches is to tempt one good man or one good woman into sin and in particular into sexual sin. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Joseph today and we're going to ask ourselves, how do I pass the temptation test? What can I do to take a stand against the enemy and all of his works? And um, the first thing that we learn from Joseph, uh, from the story of Joseph, is that he sought out and lived in the presence of God. Later in the story of the Old Testament, we find one of the most courageous leaders that God's people ever had, which is, of course, Joshua. And Joshua is an amazing leader, um, and he's the kind of person who doesn't ever seem to allow the situation or the circumstances to get in the way of doing a courageous and right thing. So uh, just thinking about the time uh, they sent spies into the Promised Land, and the spies came back, and they said, it's amazing. It's everything that we've ever wanted. It's everything that God has promised us. It's flowing with milk and honey. And then most people continue to say, but there are also big giants in the land. And they're too big for us and we can't go. And it was only Joshua and his friend Caleb who said, no, God is with us doesn't matter how big the giants are we can certainly do this he's also the guy who led God's people to the edge of the river Jordan and then he had to lead people to step into the Jordan even when there was still water there you know trusting and having faith that God would stop the waters and that's exactly what happened he's also the guy who led God's people to then begin to conquer the promised land and push back the Canaanites amazing amazing courage and and We need courage like that. You know, not just for the big moments, not just for public moments, but we need courage, especially for the hidden moments. For when nobody else will ever know, we need the kind of strength of character and um, depth of personality and strength of courage that Joshua had. But where did he get that courage from? Well, it seems to me he got that courage from living in God's presence. You just have to wind back to Exodus chapter 33. You see Moses meeting with God in, the, in this thing called the tent of meeting. And in 33 verse 11 it says this, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua son of Nun did not leave the tent. Joshua was somebody who was shaped his whole person, his whole being, was shaped in the presence of God. And it's the same for Joseph. In in verse 2 of the passage that we read, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. And in verse 3, the Lord was with him. And I read a whole bunch of commentaries on this passage, and they all said that this isn't just technical language. This isn't just, you know, God was there, or God, you know, sort of was keeping an eye on Joseph or God was sort of swooshing the clouds out of the way and peering through the hole at Joseph. It's the language of intimacy. It's the language of presence. God was with Joseph. He'd lived in God's presence. The preparation for this temptation, this moment of extreme temptation 
was the days and months before that when he'd lived and steeped and soaked in the presence of God. If you're somebody who regularly faces temptation, maybe you're the kind of person who for your work you often have to go and uh, live in a hotel somewhere and be away from home for extended periods of time and you face extreme temptation in those moments or maybe you're someone who often finds yourself with a computer in your house when nobody else is there and you, you know that you're going to face temptation in those moments. The best preparation that you can make for those moments is to steep yourself and soak yourself in the presence of God. I love that story in Numbers chapter 17 where Aaron, who's the the high priest, he takes his staff, his walking stick, and he takes it into the presence of God, into the um, Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and he leans it against the Ark of the Covenant in God's presence, and then he leaves it there. And then they go back the next day, and this staff isn't the same. It's It actually says, Aaron's staff had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. I don't know why almonds, but there you go. Uh, In God's presence, we grow. In God's presence, God changes us. He shapes us. And our Christian walk becomes richer, and we bear more fruit. So that's the first thing. The best preparation that we can make is to is to seek out and soak in the presence of God. Secondly, fill the room with people. We're specifically told in verse 11 that there was nobody there, right? So I think that probably would have been a very unusual thing to happen. But in that moment, there's Potiphar's wife and there's Joseph and nobody else. All of the other servants are elsewhere. And isn't that so often when we're tempted the most and when we're most vulnerable, when there's nobody else there? It's like no one will ever know. Lots and lots of people in our church, I'm sure, face moments when it's like, if I do this thing, I'm pretty sure no one will ever find out. I was uh, speaking to a friend of mine last week and... uh, Speaking of, he was telling me that, that one time he'd been away on business and he was in Russia. And when he was in Russia, he was staying in a really upmarket hotel. But even in this upmarket hotel, uh, people would come along at night time, several times often, and knock on his door. And it would be prostitutes. And just knock on the door. Also heard about somebody recently who was away on business and they had uh, gone for a massage. And whilst they were having this massage, the, the masseur then said, would you like a happy ending? Now, I don't know what that means, but I'm pretty sure that his marriage vows would have disallowed it. And I know that for lots of us, this whole thing about porn and the internet and, and stuff on TV is a real issue for us. And for so often, it's no one will ever know Well, what do you do in that moment when you're pretty sure that no one will ever know, when you're utterly alone? Joseph begins to mentally fill the room with people. Verse 8, he says this, My master does not concern himself with anything in this house. He's entrusted it all to me. So in his mind, now his master is in the room. He's imagining what his master would say, what the consequences would be of his master hearing about that thing, finding out about it, how devastated his master would be with his wife's infidelity and the consequences of that which would surely be horrible. Verse 9, 
He says, no one is greater in this house than me. So into the bedroom now comes the whole household. You know, it's like the master's there, you know, just at the foot of the bed. And now there's all these, all these other people in the room as well. Imagine if they'd found out and what the consequences would be if a single person in the whole of this household was to just get a slight suspicion that something had happened. It's as if he's bringing all these people into the room, all the people who would be affected by his actions. He's trying to ram home to himself. Probably no one would ever find out, but if they did, what would be the consequences? I was at a seminar about two or three years ago by um, John Wright, who is with his wife, Debbie. They're just about to take over from John and Ellie Mumford leading the vineyard movement in the UK. Uh, remarkable leaders and, and he was talking about how do you make sure that you keep going for the long haul that you stay faithful to God and you stay faithful to your spouse for the long haul and he said what you need to do is make a list sit down one day with a piece of paper and a pen and write out the list of who are the people who would be devastated if I was to have an affair top of the list my spouse my wife my husband if I had an affair, they would be devastated. It would probably, or it definitely would damage my marriage. It might even permanently ruin my marriage. Next on the list, my children. My children would be inconsolable. And over time, almost certainly, my children would become distant from me. The trust would be broken down. And they might even over time become estranged from me. I might never see my children. My friends, they wouldn't know what to say. They try to understand, but they'd be devastated. My family would be mortified. I'd find it incredibly difficult to be in church if people knew. And you could just go on and on and on. If you're somebody who regularly faces temptation in any area, make a list. Of course, even when you're completely alone and there's a genuine reason for believing that no one would ever find out you're still not alone Joseph in verse 9 says this how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God you might think no one will ever know this is totally secret this is just between me and this person or whatever and the truth is all of heaven is looking on all of heaven is looking on so you say to yourself no one is here but God is here. Joseph filled the room with people. Thirdly, he fostered an attitude of gratitude. It's the oldest trick in the enemy's book, isn't it? To draw our attention to the one thing that we can't have, draw our eye away from all of the manifold blessings of God, all of the richness and the abundance of all the things that he's given us, and to focus on the one thing we can't have. Isn't that what he did to Eve? You know, there was Eve and her husband. They were in the garden, and it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was surrounded by rivers and beautiful streams, and God had put into the garden, you know, loads of different kinds of trees and plants, and, it, and the Bible says some of them were just beautiful to look at, and some of them were brilliant for food, and it was just absolutely fantastic. And he had, she had a husband who loved her, and, and they knew no shame, and it was just such a beautiful thing. Uh, and yet the enemy comes along in um, chapter 3 and he says 
are you absolutely sure you can't have that one tree that God said you can't have? And it says in Genesis 3 verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom and she took some and she ate it. In her heart she was saying, doesn't matter all these amazing, bounteous, rich gifts that God has given me. I want the one thing that he hasn't given me. Such a dangerous position to be in when we focus on what we can't have. I heard of a woman recently who said, well, I've given and given and given to my kids and to my husband for 25 years and now it's me time. She said, I deserve to be happy and I'm going to go and do whatever I want to do now. And she walked out on her husband and her kids and she moved in with the uh, next door neighbor. What she should have said is, God, thank you so much for giving me a husband. Thank you so much for my gorgeous children. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my church. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my family. What she should have done is focus on all the things that she had, but instead she chose to focus on the one thing that she couldn't have. Joseph counts his blessings. He says this in verse 8. Everything my master owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. He says, look at everything I've got. Mike and Emma Waldridge are uh, part of the church leadership team, and they have an amazing ministry supporting marriage and family life across the church and beyond. And they have this brilliant saying, which I absolutely love. I don't know whether they nicked it from someone, but it's, it's this. The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. I love that. We should not, as Christians, spend our lives resting our chin on the fence and looking at all the things that we don't have but instead enjoying and celebrating everything that God has given us. Foster an attitude of gratitude. Next one, uh, steer clear of hazards. Ironically, one of the reasons why Taryn and I decided to live in Aberdeen and not somewhere else in Scotland was because we looked up the annual rainfall and we decided that Aberdeen was a dry place to live. Uh, Less so the last couple of weeks, but there you go. And we, um, uh, I was reading in the, in the newspaper the other day, and I, d I don't know the extent of it, but supposedly in Bridge of Don this week, there was a, a part of a road which collapsed and this huge hole opened up in the middle of the road. Now presumably, you know, the next day or the day after when the floodwaters had subsided and the, you know, the, the dove had taken the olive branch or whatever, you know, once the water had gone down, Presumably, they'd put some cones or some, you know, red and white tape or something around this hazard in the middle of the road. But wouldn't it be so weird if, let's say I had to drive along that road every day, wouldn't it be so weird if I was just driving along, I could see this hazard, this big hole in the middle of the road, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, when I see that hazard, yeah, probably if I drove into that hazard, probably, like, the car would get stuck and then damaged and then I'd have to call out somebody to winch me out and then the insurance company would have to be involved and then my premiums would go up and my wife would laugh at me and, and you know, wouldn't it be so weird if being aware of that hazard and everything that it represented I just carried on just driving into the hole 
Next day, driving along, oh look, there's that hazard again into the hole. It'd be so weird, wouldn't it? And yet the truth is that so often we see the hazard and we change nothing. We can see where temptation is coming down the track and we don't steer clear, we just keep going. Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me. And I don't think it's sleeping that she has in her mind. And Joseph steers completely clear. Verse 10. Though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Do you see, it's like he's a slave. His freedom is severely restricted because he's a slave and yet he does everything within his power to not find himself alone with Potiphar's wife. He steers clear of the hazard as much as possible. Uh, D.A. Carson is one of the world's uh, most respected theologians, and I heard him speaking about his, I think it was his ethics lecturer when he was at theological college as an undergraduate, and uh, supposedly this guy was really dull, and he spoke in a totally monotone voice, and often he would start his lecture, lectures by saying, okay, everyone, I've got 16 points for you today. And everyone's like, oh, no, this is dreadful. Um, but there's, he says there's one lecture that he'll always be thankful for. There were, there were 12 points, and they all finished up in the same way. And, and essentially the, the run of the thing was, when, if you're a man and you're a pastor and you're in your study, and a woman comes in, and she's terribly distressed, stay behind the desk. And supposedly every one of these 12 points was stay behind the desk. I wonder what that is for you. What does it mean for you in your context with the temptations that you face to stay behind the desk? Billy Graham, one of my heroes, has never had an accusation of sexual infidelity or anything like that ever in his life. And, and no one has even tried. And the reason is because he's made a decision right from the start to never travel alone with a woman who isn't his wife and to never eat alone with a woman who isn't his wife. I love that. The kind of deliberate intentionality of, I'm just gonna decide in advance how I'm gonna live my life in order to protect my marriage. And actually, just so you know, uh, if, you, if you're in our church and you're in any kind of position of pastoral care, you're a small group leader or you're leading some kind of ministry or you're on our staff or whatever it is, there is actually never a reason to be pastoring a woman if you're a guy or vice versa because there are loads of women and loads of guys in our church. However, I fully recognize that for a whole bunch of us in our church, we don't get to choose who we travel with because our boss decides that. You know, you're traveling alone with somebody because that's just how it works out. You're, you know, you don't get to choose those kind of things. And so you've got to decide, how does this play out? How do you live? And so I've asked a bunch of people who regularly travel uh, in our church, you know, what do you do in that moment where, you're, where you've, you've kind of flown to another country, you've checked into your hotel, what do you do? Do you hang out together? Do you, you know, how does that all play out? And, and um, 
One person said this, he said, what I do is when we get to the lift, having checked in, I turn to the girl or the woman and I say, I'll see you in the morning. I said, what, so you don't socialize at all in the evenings? No, I've just decided that's the safest way, that's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I take room service in my room and that's just how it works and that way there's never any question. Somebody else I spoke to said, well, no, I think it's, uh, for me, uh, I, I prefer to have a meal with someone because I think it would be a bit odd if I didn't, but I never drink alcohol in those moments because I know that drinking alcohol would change the way that I saw the situation. Uh, yeah, and, and a few other people said a few different things, but, but here's the point. Every single person said, plan ahead. Don't be taken by surprise by that moment and not have thought it through. Talk to your spouse and say, what do you think is appropriate for me to do in those kind of situations? How would I keep myself safe? Plan ahead. So steer clear of hazards. Uh, lastly, coward stay. Um, I, I just as... Uh, with regards to nothing at all. I'm, I designed that little uh, phrase there to rhyme with Howard's Way, and I realize that most of you have got no idea what Howard's Way was. Hands up if you know what Howard's Way is. Hands up if you have no idea, you've never heard the phrase Howard's Way before. Oh my goodness. Okay, well there, we'll just move on from that. Verse 12. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. I've never been in a fight, I've never punched anyone, no one's ever punched me, and that's not because I'm a very chilled out person, although I am quite a chilled out person, it's because I'm very afraid of pain, and so I avoid pain at all costs. And at school, I had the reputation as a total wimp and a total coward, because whenever there was a fight kicking off, I just ran away. In fact, there was one time where we were uh, in the middle of town, me and my mate, we'd been shopping, and we were walking down this little alleyway next to McDonald's and suddenly these lads came up to us and they started pushing my friend around and asking him for a smoke even though he didn't smoke and they pushed him around and um, later on my friend came into McDonald's and he was holding the pieces of his broken nose in his hand you know and, and there's blood pouring everywhere and he was like what happened to you and I was like I don't know I just kept walking so I know that story doesn't paint me in a terribly good light. I fully understand that. In most circumstances, cowards run away and the courageous stand up and do something about it. But when it comes to temptation, it's the other way around. The courageous run. And cowards stay and see it through. It's never too late to run away. Even if you've got yourself into a situation that you know you shouldn't have got yourself in, it's never too late to run away. It's always the right, right time to do the right thing. Let me just finish with this. My family and I have just been away on holiday, and what we used to do is we used to drive all the way down to, you know, halfway down France or sometimes even further. Uh, the last year or two, we've taken to flying instead, which is a total revelation to us and absolutely brilliant. But our kids, because we've driven for so long, they, the whole flying thing is like an adventure to them. It's just so new. And this summer, we, we got to the airport. It was really grim, dark clouds, cold, raining, miserable, just really horrible. 
And so we took off and then we kind of climbed in altitude. We came through the clouds and then up above the clouds, it was glorious sunshine. And my kids were like, this is amazing. This is like incredible. It's so horrible down there. They were saying, what they should do is they should get the weather forecaster to say, here's what it's like on the ground. And then here's what it's like at like 30,000 feet or something like that. And I was trying to explain to them, no, no, at 30,000 feet, it's always like this. The sun is always shining up here. We're just not always aware of it on the ground. Well, there is turbulence. That is true, yeah. But here's, here's the point. You know, for Joseph, in his situation on the ground, it must have looked utterly miserable. Having previously had a life of absolute luxury where he wanted for nothing, he's estranged from his family, he's sold into slavery. And in fact, in Psalm 105, it says, Joseph sold as a slave, they bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons. I can't imagine how utterly miserable his circumstances and his situation must have looked on the ground. But the author of the book of Genesis draws our eye away from his circumstances and his situation and all the way to God who is reigning even in this situation. And so you see in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with him. Verse 5, the Lord blessed him. Later on, the blessing of the Lord. God is always at work and he always reigns, even when we don't perceive it. And I don't know, there may be a bunch of people here today, or maybe you're in Inverurie or uh, Stonehaven or Ellen, and on the ground where you are, it's really grim. What this passage teaches us is that God is with us in the mess. And we would love to pray for you if it doesn't feel like that right now. That God would come and meet you and that he would make himself known to you even in the mess. Let's stand, shall we?